With Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our online banking and mobile app are like having a branch at your fingertips. Insured by NCUA and with everything you need to use and manage your accounts 24-7. Hi, I'm Tom Obergfell of Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, inviting you to enjoy better banking where and when you want. Features include bill pay, money transfer, budgeting, early payday program, and much more. Check us out today at NotreDameFCU.com to learn more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our good bishop, potentially wrapping up our series on the Eucharist here. We've done, I think this will be part six of, of a three-part. Yeah. I know, it was supposed to be three parts, yeah. and but I had so much I wanted to say. No, it's great, it's great. So we did an introduction, talking about the Eucharist against mystery. We did the Eucharist as sacrifice, presence, and communion, kind of wrapping up that idea of communion Last episode was focusing on our communion with Christ, and you teased at the end of that episode that this would be focusing more on communion with the church. Exactly. Great. Because really, they're inseparable. The church is Christ's body, and Christ is the head of the church. Mm -hmm. So the Eucharist is the mystery of communion with Christ and with the church, Mm -hmm. with one another, because it's not just me and Jesus. You know, that's kind of individualism. I mean, that's not correct. I mean, there also is this union with one another. It's through our union with Christ, though, that we are united to one another. Mm -hmm. Now, we're united. The whole church is united with Christ in offering the Eucharistic sacrifice. Remember that. We're united in offering the Eucharistic. Even the church on earth and the church in heaven are united. The Eucharist is celebrated in communion with the whole church. It's celebrated in communion with the faithful departed, those who've died in Christ but aren't yet fully purified so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. Of course, I'm referring to the souls in purgatory. Mm -hmm. So the Eucharist is really at the root of the church as a mystery of communion. The church is a mystery of communion. And the Eucharist is the supreme sacramental manifestation of communion in the church. The Eucharist not only proclaims unity, it makes it real. St. Thomas Aquinas taught that the reality of the Eucharist, in Latin, the res, R-E-S, the res, the reality of the Eucharist, The grace of the Eucharist is precisely the unity of the mystical body of Christ. The Eucharist nurtures that unity. The Catechism teaches this, and if someone wants to look it up, it's Catechism number 1396. It's a paragraph, and in the paragraph, the Catechism quotes St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, where St. Paul teaches about this communion within the, the church. So I'll quote, the unity of the mystical body, the Eucharist makes the church. Those who receive the Eucharist are united more closely to Christ. Through it, Christ unites them to all the faithful in one body, the church. 
Communion renews, strengthens, and deepens this incorporation into the church already achieved by baptism. In baptism, we have been called to form one body. The Eucharist fulfills this call. And here's the quote from St. Paul. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Think about, I'll give an example from one of the Eucharistic prayers. Eucharistic prayer three, the priest prays, grant that we who are nourished by his body and blood may be filled with his Holy Spirit and become one body, one spirit in Christ. So the Eucharist is the sacrament of the church's unity. Now this communion with one another brought about by the Eucharist is especially important to think about in a time of division and even polarization in the church because that goes against the meaning of the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. This isn't necessarily anything new. Think back about what St. Paul was dealing with in Corinth. There was a division among the faithful. St. Paul wrote to them about how their divisions contradicted what they were celebrating in the Eucharist. So St. Paul urged the Corinthians to reflect on the true reality of the Eucharist in order to return to the spirit of fraternal communion. Well, I think we need to do this today because of the divisions in the church and in the world. Maybe we need a letter from Pope Francis to Bishop Rhodes. (laughs) (laughs) What would we call the people of our diocese, the Fort Wayneans and the (laughs) South Bendians? Back in 2004, the year I was ordained a bishop, John Paul wrote this apostolic letter for the year of the Eucharist. At that time, the year of the Eucharist, it was titled Mane Nobiscum Domine, Remain Uh with us, Lord. Hmm. And in that letter, John Paul wrote about the Eucharist as the source of communion and the manifestation of communion. He used the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they asked Jesus to stay with them. That's what it means in Latin, mane nobiscum dominos, domine, stay with us, Lord. And this is what John Paul wrote. Jesus responded by giving them a much greater gift. Through the sacrament of the Eucharist, he found a way to stay in them. Receiving the Eucharist means entering into a profound communion with Jesus. Abide in me, and I in you, Jesus said to the disciples in his parable of the vine and the branches. Then John Paul wrote about this special closeness with Jesus, this communion with Jesus, also being communion with his body, the church. And this is what John Paul wrote, I quote, this special Closeness, which comes about in Eucharistic communion, cannot be adequately understood or fully experienced apart from ecclesial communion. 
The church is the body of Christ. We walk with Christ to the extent that we are in relationship with his body. Christ provided for the creation and growth of this unity by the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, and he himself constantly builds it up by his Eucharistic presence. It is the one Eucharistic bread which makes us one body. As the Apostle Paul states, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In the mystery of the Eucharist, Jesus builds up the church as a communion in accordance with the supreme model evoked in his priestly prayer. Jesus said, Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the Eucharist is both a source of communion and a manifestation of communion. I like to think about the idea of the communion that we see in the Acts of the Apostles, this early church, the primitive community in Jerusalem. They would come together for the Eucharist. They called it the breaking of the bread. And the Acts of the Apostles tells us that they shared in spiritual and material goods. And it says they were of one heart and soul. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. They were of one heart and soul. There was no one needy among them Mm -hmm. because they shared, you know. They looked after each other. The Eucharist creates communion. It fosters communion. And as I mentioned, when St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about how the divisions there were these divisions among them when they gathered for the Eucharist. He said, this is contradicting what you're celebrating. Mm. And what was actually happening there in Corinth? Well, the rich were gorging themselves at the meal that was associated with the Eucharist because there was a meal. And the poor, they were being neglected and left to go hungry. Mm-hmm. St. Paul was quite upset and said to them, I mean, he wrote very strong words. He said, you show contempt for the church of God. If you want to read more about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. I'll just quote a couple of those verses, verses 27 to 29, because this is important to remember. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. St. Paul urged them to reflect on the true reality of the Eucharist Mm -hmm. and to return to the spirit of fraternal communion. St. Augustine wrote about this passage from St. Paul, and he commented on it. And he said, whoever receives the mystery of unity without preserving the bonds of peace receives not a mystery for his benefit, but evidence against himself. Mm. Okay, so this teaches us that the Eucharist isn't the starting point for communion. Some people think, and you see this, some writers will say, that 
we should have intercommunion with everybody. Mm-hmm. And that if you have that, then that'll help bring about, for example, the reunion of Christians. Meaning anybody could receive our... Yeah, or any Christian communion. could receive. Oh, okay. or, I mean, there's some who'd even go beyond Christians, uh-huh. which is crazy. But, but that's not, it's not correct. The Eucharist presupposes that communion already exists. Mm. And there's two aspects of this communion that should already exist. And that is visible communion, first of all. In other words, one needs to be in communion with the teaching of the apostles. One must profess the apostolic faith and communion in the sacraments and in the church's hierarchical order That's visible communion. These are the visible bonds that are constitutive of the church. These are outward bonds of communion that need to be intact. I'll give you an example. One must be baptized Mm -hmm. in order to receive Holy Communion. Another example, the Eucharist being celebrated must be valid. In other words, has to be celebrated by validly ordained priests, Mm -hmm. priests who are ordained by bishops who are in apostolic succession. One must, who's in apostasy or heresy or schism, must not receive communion. That's a contradiction. One must be in full communion with the church, with the bishops and the pope. Now, there are a few exceptions to this last condition about being in communion with the bishops and the pope because, for example, there are situations where the church will allow communion under exceptional circumstances. We can read about this in the Code of Canon Law, Canon 844. The example I want to give is the Eastern Christians, Mm -hmm. like the Orthodox. Orthodox, the Eastern Christians who are separated in good faith from the Catholic Church, who spontaneously ask to receive the Eucharist from a Catholic minister and are properly disposed, may be admitted to Holy Communion. They're in a special kind of situation because they are the Eastern Orthodox for example, they have valid sacraments. They have apostolic succession. They have valid priests and valid bishops. Okay. They believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So they are very close to us in the faith. So we're not very restrictive when it comes to the Eastern Christians. Now, they would have to ask. You don't just, we would not have like an open invitation like if you're at Mass and you see some Orthodox Christians just say, oh, come up for communion. No, it's something that they would have to ask for, and they have to be properly disposed, just as Catholics do, which means mm-hmm. be in a state of grace, not in the state of mortal sin. So that is kind of, they're not in full communion with the Catholic Church, but they're close. Okay. They don't respect the Pope in the same way that we would? Right. As opposed to different rites, right. like uh, Byzantine and such. Because they're Catholics. Communion. They're in communion, yeah. right? They're in full communion. Full communion. Yeah. Orthodox. It's imperfect communion, yeah. Okay. 
Now, further away in less communion would be Protestants. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the restrictions for Protestants, non-Eastern Christians who aren't in full communion with the Catholic Church are much more strict. Mm -hmm. And let me just quote what the church's law says. Again, it's Canon 844. That's the big canon when it comes to this whole question of intercommunion. In the fourth paragraph of Canon 844, it says, you have to really listen carefully to this because there's a lot of conditions here. If the danger of death is present, Hmm. or if in the judgment of the diocesan bishop or conference of bishops, some other grave necessity urges it, Catholic ministers and ministers administer these same sacraments, penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick, licitly, which means lawfully, also to other Christians not having full communion with the Catholic Church. Primarily, these would be Protestants, mm-hmm. non-Eastern, who cannot approach a minister of their own community and who seek such on their own accord, provided... <laughs> that they manifest Catholic faith in respect to these sacraments and are properly disposed. Okay. Okay, so it would be quite rare because first of all, it begins with, it has to be, first of all, danger of death or a grave necessity. Mm -hmm. Danger of death or grave, plus the other four conditions. Essentially, they're converting, right? They they are assenting to the faith. Yeah, but they're uh, not. other causes there that they, they want to receive and they abide by and all of this, like essentially they, they want to become Catholic and there's not enough time to go through RCA. Is that, is that kind of the situation? Not necessarily. Okay. I mean, for example, they may not believe in the authority of the Pope. Mm-hmm which if they're going to become Catholic, they have to accept that. Sure. What the canon says, they have to believe in the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Ah. They have to believe, have Catholic faith regarding the sacraments. Okay. Doesn't say re- regarding some of the other okay. things. Yeah. yeah. But again, before anything else, there has to be, they're either dying mm-hmm. or there's a grave necessity. And that would be determined by the bishop. Sometimes I get asked about that. and I mean, it would really have to be something extremely serious. Let's say a person in prison, Hmm. you know, who believes that Catholic Eucharist is really true. It's the Mm -hmm. body and blood of Jesus. Or let's say there's some imminent disaster Mm -hmm. about to happen or something. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it'd be be very rare. A bishop would have to judge that. But— Refusing a Protestant the Eucharist isn't a form of punishment. It's not some kind of arbitrary exclusivity that we're trying to create more divisions in Christianity than already exist. Right. Can you explain a Protestant that feels like, well, what do you have against me? Right. What, what? No, and it's nothing personal. It's nothing against the person. That person is still our brother and sister or sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. I would say that to them. I would say, however, you know, the Eucharist is the sacrament of communion with one another that 
involves certain necessary elements. It's not just a superficial communion while we believe some of the same things. Mm. No, the Eucharist is much more than that. It's the sacrament of real, true, full communion. You know, like we profess the same faith. Mm -hmm. We believe in the sacraments. We're united with the Pope and the bishops. You know, it's it's kind of like, and when you say, well, the Orthodox aren't, well, the Orthodox are united with valid bishops. Mm -hmm. They really are. But, and they would recognize the Pope as a, a valid bishop, et cetera. They okay. wouldn't recognize his authority as much as we do, though. Mm -hmm. This is really the the discipline of the church, and it's something that goes back from the very beginning. I mean, if you were in heresy and deny, I mean, this is the first centuries of the church. Let's say you denied the important teaching of the church, you would not be allowed to go to Holy Communion. Would you say probably unintentionally it's being dishonest that right. saying I believe and I'm in unity with the church and I agree all this, like, but you don't. And right. so there's, right. there's a discordance there. Right. Exactly. It's an imperfect communion. Mm -hmm. Now we're working towards full Christian unity and hopefully someday yeah. everyone will be united at the table of the Lord. After you write that letter, right? Right. <laughs> Uh, you know, when we were preparing the Eucharist document, you know, the USCCB Doctrine Committee, the major issue publicly debated and in the media was about another canon related to this necessity of being in visible communion. Because you can have a Catholic who is separated. Mm hmm you know, not invisible communion. And there's another canon that deals with that, canon 915, where it says that those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others obstinately persisting in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So here we're not talking about the subjective state of a person's soul. And we're not talking, because that's invisible. This is visible communion. We can't judge the state of soul, of the soul of somebody else. Mm -hmm. So this can is referring to manifest, okay, public, you know, manifest, grave sin, objectively speaking, objectively speaking. Can we say that that person is in a state of mortal sin? No. But... Objectively speaking, if they are committing a moral sin and they don't even, won't recognize it as such, mm -hmm. they're in error and we're not talking about their soul. We're talking about objectively speaking. I mean, if someone thinks that it's okay in their conscience, let's say a physician thinks it's okay to do abortions. Mm -hmm. And in his conscience, he's saying, I, I see nothing wrong with this. Obviously, his conscience is in error. Mm -hmm. And then he, you know, presents himself for communion. No, because he's not in visible communion with the church. I don't know if he's in invisible communion in the state of grace. I can't judge that. But he's not in visible communion. So he should not receive because he's 
obstinately persisting in manifest grave sin. This is a manifest grave sin. Now, to obstinately persevere means that he's been corrected, he's been right. talked to, he's been told, but he's still obstinate. Now, there's a lot of controversy over this because of the situation of Catholic politicians who publicly and actively promote the grave sin and abortion and then go and receive Holy Communion. But Canon 915 says, as I keep quoting, those who obstinately persist in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So before you explain more about that, are you saying that somebody would be disqualified for receiving the Eucharist because of their actions publicly, but it might not be a mortal sin on their soul because of other things like say they've gone through some kind of trauma in their childhood and, and have been poorly formed or been manipulated in some way. And it's right. It might not be, they might not be as culpable right. for the sin, right. but still since it's a public thing, they should not receive communion. Right. Cause it causes grave scandal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, you know, I use abortion as an example, but there are other cases of outward conduct that can be clearly, very seriously contrary to the moral norm. For example, I've used this example in the past. Let's say you had Ku Klux Klan wizard, Mm. someone who is a leader in a racist organization who hates black people and Jews, et cetera. And let's say that person's a Catholic. And I mean, should we allow them to go to Holy Communion? Mm. No. Right. You know, I mean, again, they're not invisible communion. They're mm. with, with the church because they are denying a fundamental moral teaching about the dignity of the human person. You know, that's a grave sin of, of racism. So, I mean, there's different examples like that. So that's important. But now, besides visible communion, and the other thing is, since we're talking about the Eucharist as communion, the invisible communion. Because the Eucharist also expresses the bond of communion in its invisible dimension. Communion with God. In other words, being in the state of grace. Not in the state of mortal sin. St. Paul appeals to this moral duty on the part of one who wishes to receive Holy Communion. As I quoted earlier, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. By the way, St. John Chrysostom, who often has very strong words, has strong words about this. John Chrysostom, in a homily that he was giving on On one of the verses in Isaiah, he said, I beseech, beg, and implore that no one draw near to this sacred table with a sullied and corrupt conscience. Such an act, in fact, can never be called communion. Not even were we to touch the Lord's body a thousand times over, but condemnation, torment, and increase of punishment. Mm. How strong he was. That's talking about someone who, you know, is in the state of mortal sin, going to communion. Uh It's the church's teaching and discipline that anyone conscious of a grave sin 
must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. Mm -hmm. And this is articulated in Canon 916. Canon 916 says, a person who is conscious of grave sin is not to celebrate Mass or receive the body of the Lord without previous sacramental confession, unless there is a grave reason and there is no opportunity to confess. In this case, the person is to remember the obligation to make an act of perfect contrition, which includes the resolution of confessing as soon as possible. So it's important that we examine our conscience before mm -hmm. receiving communion to make sure that we are properly disposed to receive. Maybe by way of kind of summing up, the Eucharist is really the most perfect form of spiritual worship, spiritual nourishment that we can imagine because it is Jesus himself. And he gives us a share in his divine life. He unites us to himself and to one another. We receive Christ in his act of giving himself to the end. So Holy Communion nourishes us with that same love, a love that we're called to live. In the Eucharist, the Lord gives us the grace and strength to love one another as he has loved us. The Eucharist commits us to the poor and suffering. The Eucharist, the sacrament of charity, is a mystery of sacrifice, presence, and communion. And it's a mystery to be lived and to be offered to the world. Its ultimate effect is eternal life and glory. In the Bread of Life Discourse, John chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So the Eucharist is the pledge of future glory. It's the foretaste of the fullness of joy that Christ promised us. So it's an anticipation of heaven. That's why St. Ignatius of Antioch spoke of the Eucharist as a medicine of immortality, an antidote to death. We receive the pledge of our bodily resurrection when we receive Holy Communion. At every Mass, notice in the Eucharistic prayer, whichever Eucharistic prayer it is, we pray that we'll join the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, the Apostles, the Martyrs, indeed all the angels and saints in heaven, as co-heirs. They're co-heirs to eternal life. Mm. And at every Mass, we're united to the li heavenly liturgy. There was something Pope Francis said at a general audience that I think kind of sums this up. He said, by the power of the Holy Spirit, participation in Holy Communion conforms us in a singular and profound way to Christ, giving us a foretaste already now of the full communion with the Father that characterizes the heavenly banquet, where together with all the saints, we will have the joy of contemplating God face to face. I think that's a good way to end this series. Yeah.
Well, thank you, Bishop. How long did it take you to put these talks together? Thinking back, I think it was in January. Yeah, because the first conference was, I think, late January. It took me a couple of weeks. Keep in mind, I, I taught a course on the Eucharist okay. and in the seminary. The, the hardest thing for me was That was a few include. years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, several, <laughs> uh, many years ago. So the hardest thing for me is, like, I knew the structure that I wanted to use, but I have a lot more material. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I could go a lot more into the teachings of the Fathers of the Church, the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas and other great theologians. We could even delve more into these different aspects of the Eucharist. But so that was my struggle was like to choose what I was going to include. And uh, I liked that book by Professor Feingold is probably the best book I've seen, which brings to a lot of what I taught in the Eucharist course is in that book because Mm -hmm. he takes that, you know, he does a lot with the fathers of the church, with the scriptures fathers of the church with the medieval doctors like Thomas Aquinas. He does a lot with Aquinas, but then we have the beautiful writings and teachings of Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. You know, Mm. a lot of that is new because, you know, I wasn't rector of the seminary during Pope Benedict's time. Uh So that all came later. Yeah. Was this textbook since your time in seminary? The textbook that you were Oh, yeah, the textbook to, was, is the last couple of years. Okay. Yeah, like maybe a year, two, two years ago, oh, wow. maybe three years ago. I forget when it was published. I would have used that text for the course if it had been, if it existed back then. Because I was teaching this back in the, in the 90s. Okay. Yeah, late 90s. All right. Well, we'll put all of these episodes together in one place and let you know where those are as soon as we get that together as well as maybe other episodes that we've talked about the Eucharist. And if you have any questions about the Eucharist or any other topic, you can always go to spokestreet.com slash askbishop, find past episodes of the show, and to uh, ask any question. There's a little form there that you can fill it out, and we'll perhaps include it in a future episode of Truth and Charity. So thank you again, Bishop. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It's engineered by Josh Skipper at the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, produced by Miriam Schmitz, and edited by Tony Marks for Spoke Street Media. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.